Welcome to the eighth chapter in the unofficial Beatrice Williams series. I'm Natalie. I'm Jess. I'm Pam. And I'm Nancy. And we're your hosts of the Novel Expressions Book Club. Today we are discussing Cocoa Beach, which picks up where a certain age left off with Virginia Fitzwilliams' story. We're back in the late 1910s to early 1920s. What new historical context comes into play in this story, Mom? Well, in this novel, we move back and forth between two years, locations, and events. 1917 in France during World War I, and then 1922 in Florida after Simon's quote-unquote death. We've already given background a lot on these years in previous podcasts, so I'm not going to go back over some of the events that were taking place, but I do want to just mention a few noteworthy additions in this novel that I think are worth mentioning. First of all, um, I don't know how many of you, as you were reading this, readers, uh, were shocked to find that Evelyn was standing, or actually sitting and standing in the front seat of the car with her mom, while the lawyer, the lawyer was driving them um, through the area of Cocoa Beach. As modern moms, we think, oh my goodness, no, car seat. And yet, if we put this into perspective, the average uh, miles per hour that a car traveled at that time was between 15 and 20 miles per hour. So there was no 70 miles an hour on a highway kind of travel. So that I think should make you feel a little bit better that she may not have been in a secure car seat. And even when we were kids, I remember sitting in the trunk of the station wagon when I was young. Yes, because you're right. You're absolutely right. I don't think when I brought Pam home from the hospital, I do not believe that was a requirement at that time. I believe that I carried her in my arms on the way home. There was no car seat requirement at that time. But certainly in 1920s, when a car could go about 20 miles an hour at top speed, or the kind of car they would have anyway, it wasn't as big of a concern. And there were much fewer cars on the road as well, obviously. People couldn't afford cars, so there weren't that many on the road. All right, a couple of other things. In Cocoa Beach, uh, the Flamingo Hotel is mentioned as having been built by Carl Fisher. This is not fictional. It was built in 1920, it opened in 1921, and it closed in 1955. And if you remember uh, the mention of Rosie the Elephant as a kind of uh, feature there, there actually was a Rosie the Elephant who was a feature in front of this Flamingo Hotel. Couple of other things I thought were so fun to think about was in terms of clothing. She had mentioned previously in a certain age, and we heard it again this time about the uh, low-waisted dresses, the dresses where the waist was kind of at the hip length. That's a common 1920s kind of look. But she also mentioned here the bathing suits. Her bathing costume, it wasn't even called a bathing suit, it was called a bathing costume, that she wore with thick black stockings. Imagine ladies going into water with thick black stockings on. And she was shocked by Clara, whom we now know as Lydia, who was showing six inches above her knee. How daring. Shocking. When I think about the bikinis that are on the beaches today, <laughs> how far we've come. I think the Brits maybe still call it a, a bathing costume. I feel like Do I've they? heard people at work say it, and I'm like, huh. oh, weird. Interesting. Interesting. Um, in 1917, we see that Virginia mentions that her father has an electric Columbia car with a tiller, not a steering wheel. And she calls it a fliver. And a fliver is just a, a slang word for a cheap car. And I actually looked this car up. It definitely had a tiller instead of a steering wheel. And um, it was really a kind of a cute car, but it was one of the cheapest cars that you could buy at that time. And then finally, I believe we need to focus on a continuing theme during this time period, and that is what the expectations are for women. Mr. Burnside, the lawyer, does not expect Virginia, a woman, to be able to run her husband's business. He just automatically assumes that she's going to have the men 
in her life or men that she hires do it for because certainly she wouldn't have the intel intellect to be able to do something like that. Oh, Mr. Burnside, you're in for a rude awakening, sir. All right, what characters do we get to see throughout this story? Okay, so Virginia Fitzwilliam is our protagonist for both time periods. In the earlier years of the book, she's driving an ambulance in France during World War I, which is how she meets Simon. After a secret love affair, they're married, but she leaves him soon after because of the lies she's been told. In the later portion of the book, Virginia is Simon's estranged widow, who has just learned about his death and the Florida businesses and estate that he left to her. Keep in mind that we already know Virginia, Fanonal, Fortescue, Fitzwilliam, from a certain age, of course. And the first chapter in this book, in the 1922 portion, picks up just days after Virginia and her daughter Evelyn have fled the Pickwick Arms Hotel following Virginia's father's murder trial. Of course, we have Captain Simon Fitzwilliam, a surgeon with the British Army who hails from a once prominent British family. Upon meeting Virginia, he is quite taken with her and spends the next several years trying to prove that he loves her and just wants to be with her, even after they are married. Samuel is Simon's twin, who has always felt inferior to Simon. Because of that, he fell prey to the first woman who paid attention to him, and she is indeed a predator. A few months into the war, Samuel is captured and spends time in a German prison camp. He later escapes, and that's when he becomes a problem for Simon and Virginia. Lydia, who we first know as Clara, Samuel's fiance, then Simon's wife, presumed dead at one point, and by the time we actually meet her, she is pretending to be Simon and Samuel's sister Clara, and we believe that for most of the book. Why would she do that? Money, of course. Agent Marshall, yep, we know him too. In this book, Agent Oliver Anson Marshall is working a bootlegging case in Florida and has convinced Simon to help him. Miss Portia Bertram is the housekeeper at Maitland Plantation. She adores Simon and spent time helping him restore the house for Virginia. We eventually learn that she is Lydia's and Clara's half-sister. All three have different mothers, but were fathered by Mr. Gibbs, a friend of Simon and Samuel's father. Clara, the real Clara, Simon and Samuel's younger half-sister, who arrives in Coco just in time to help rescue Simon and Virginia from Lydia's attempt to kill them. And then we also have some subordinate characters who are worth mentioning. Um, in the earlier portion, the 1917 portion of the book, we have Hazel, who is Virginia's nurse friend, uh, Mrs. DeForest, who is the head of Virginia's Red Cross chapter. There are some other soldiers mentioned. In the latter portion of the book, we, in 1922, we have Evelyn, who is Simon and Virginia's daughter, who is just two and a half years old. Mr. Burnside, the lawyer who informs Virginia of Simon's death and shows her around Cocoa, Florida. We have Sammy, uh, Simon's son with Lydia, who is possibly not his son at all. So before we get into our favorite elements, um, I just have to ask a question because something you just said in the characters, this is something that I was questioning toward the end of the book. So is Lydia actually Mr. Gibbs's daughter or are just Clara and Portia his biological daughters? It sounded to me, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, it sounded to me like there was perhaps a swap of spouses between Simon's father and Mr. Gibbs. And so each of them fathered the opposite wife's child. Now, did I misunderstand that or was that what happened? I didn't get that out of it because that would mean that Lydia is blood related to Simon and, and Oh, that's Samuel. true. I don't think so. There were things toward the end of the novel that talked about um, that they were rightful heirs to get, like, you know, that they would have to share the estate from the Gibbs family, but that Lydia didn't want to share it. It was like she knew, but the other girls didn't know. You know, that and Portia didn't know, actually, Clara didn't know. So she was actually Mr. Gibbs' daughter. I believe so. In addition, there, were, there was Clara. Yeah. 
who was his daughter, and then Portia. Yep. And I think the reason why Lydia had such an issue with it is she felt like she was the rightful heir because she was from her the mom legitimate. and dad. Yes. Correct. And then Correct. he was stepping out on the mom for the other two kids. And that's why she felt like they didn't deserve it. Right. But weren't, um, weren't the Fitzwilliams also fooling around? Well, that's where Clara came from, Mr. Gibbs and Mrs. Fitzwilliam. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And that's, I think that really the issue is that Mr. Gibbs is a playboy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously the women had a part in it, but he was married and not satisfied in his marriage or, you know, didn't think it was important because he's got three. I mean, Clara and Lydia are like days apart. Right. You know, and I'm not sure where Portia fits in there age wise, but there are three young women, not that far apart in age, with the same father. Mm -hmm. Interesting, though, that Lydia would have a big problem with that, um, you know, being the legitimate versus the not legitimate or whatever, because her own son, who right. she gives birth to, there's question about his father. Right. So. But I think that's because she had to find a way to... Um, to get Simon to marry her. Sure. And, and maybe she got, found herself pregnant and decided this would be a perfect way. And she could also cover up the fact that she was stepping out on Samuel while he was in the military. I don't know. Well, for sure. But I mean, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Right. That's, that's the point. Yeah. yeah but but how funny is that, that Clara is also Mr. Gibbs daughter and she is a, you know, a, upstanding moral girl and yet Lydia is just the opposite mm -hmm. right they, come, they both come from the same father yeah yep. and Portia seemed like a good person too mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. but she was raised by her mother right yes. mama I should have mentioned mama as well we don't meet her but we hear about her Yes. All right. Sorry for that quick detour. Um, so my favorite element in this book even given the fact that it was the second time I've read it I still was like guessing right up until the very end, like who's good, who's bad. I feel like there's something going on with the sister. What is going on? I just could not remember. And, and then even like once some things got revealed of who Clara really, you know, was Lydia, I was still like, what's going to happen? How is this book going to end? So um, just very cool. And Beatrice is so talented and I heart her. So mine is also kind of similar um, in that she got me in the beginning thinking certain things about characters. I was going back over my notes after I had taken my annotations and I discovered that I said certain things about characters that ended up actually being true about other characters at the end. Um, specifically, I had described the Clara who was who we met in Florida as being so fun and honest. And I described Simon in the beginning as possibly being a sociopath. And then by the end, it's actually Clara who is the sociopath. But I totally hadn't picked that up when we first you met. You mean her. Lydia? Yes, yes. Lydia. The Clara, Lydia. Lydia, yes. Correct. Okay, I, I'm sorry, I was looking to see if you had anything else you're going to say about that. Um, so I also liked exactly what both of you are mentioning, um, but I wanted to go a different route too, because I really liked getting to know Virginia. Um, when we read A Certain Age, you know, I, I don't know, I, I thought of her as just this like boring kind of matronly, like what's up with her anyway, you know, and she's She's very prominent in that book as far as being there as Sophie's sister, but we don't really get to know her. So I remember the first time reading then this and then again this time reading it like, oh, yeah, we get to know Virginia. This is cool. And one of the things I like about her as we get her point of view is I like the cool, calm, collected attitude that she almost always presents, but that I get to know as the reader what's really going on on the inside, that she's not feeling that way all of the time. And, and in a way, it's kind of sad because a lot of it has to do with what her upbringing's been like, like hide my true feelings, like hide who I am all of the time because of what happened with her mother. And like, I think we mentioned this before, but just try to imagine growing up thinking 
your father married your or married your father murdered your mother and you think that but you don't even think you should ask about that because you're afraid of what the answer is going to be so anyway she has this whole you know childhood of secrets but then into adulthood obviously there are still a lot of secrets but it almost gives her the advantage of she can kind of keep it together on the outside for a lot of the time while she's maybe a mess on the inside. But that was just a fun thing for me as we were reading, just to kind of get that perspective from her. I will say when we read a certain age, I remember we said like, we didn't really like Sophie. Like she was just kind of like, Meh. and it, and I didn't love Virginia in that book either, but I will say after reading this book, I love Virginia so much more than mm -hmm. I did Sophie for sure. Yep. Well, for me, the thing that, is what I thought was good about this book was the fact that nothing was as it seemed. I suspected everybody. Actually, the only person I didn't suspect of having, uh, you know, terrible motives was Virginia herself. I suspected Samuel. I suspected Simon. I suspected Clara Lydia. I suspected Mr. Burnside or whatever his name was. I suspected Portia even at one point. I thought, is Portia trying to kill her? I suspected everybody. So it really made me feel like I was constantly uncomfortable with what was going on and trying to figure it out. And that's fun for you because you always love a good mystery. I do. <laughs> I will say, not that I suspected that Virginia was up to no good, but I thought that Virginia knew and was like play, like trying to play like she didn't know at certain points and then come to find out like she actually really just didn't know. Right. Yeah. But there were times where she did play. Yeah, yeah. that's true. That's true. That is true. You know, and I was like, yeah, girl. No. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, cool. All right, let's get into our other noteworthy discussion topic. So just as I said in our last episode, um, I'm going to keep bringing this up as long as Beatrice keeps up with it. But our pattern continues. Um, in this book, we are looking at two close time periods following the same group of characters, fundamentally the same group of characters. Um, in contrast to our last book, where we were looking at two different time periods, two different character sets. So it continues. We will see what happens in our next book. Um, the other thing I did want to just quickly call out is I know one of the criticisms from last, uh, our last discussion was, was it our last discussion or was it a, yeah, it was our last discussion. It was discussion. a recent one. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, because they were like, they felt like um, they didn't like how Wicked City ended and they just felt like things were unfinished and maybe they felt that way is about a certain age. I don't remember, but regardless. In the um, order. Yes. Mm -hmm. Order is important because we meet Virginia in a certain age. We see Oliver, we like learn about Oliver kind of um, via Teresa, who we see a lot in that book. And then of course, she's dating Octavian, who falls for Sophie, which brings us back to Virginia. So there's this whole circuitous relationship. And then we get to see Oliver a lot more in Wicked City. And, and he's back in this book at the, in, in the scenes with Virginia. And then at the very end, he shows up at their house with... This is where we see that tie-in back into right. Wicked City with Ginger and Patsy. And they're there to possibly be hidden, hopefully, um, from this whole Duke Kelly thing happening. Right. And that's how we are able to know the timeline of when Oliver intersects with Virginia and Simon, because at the end of the novel, he's bringing Ginger and her sister to Cocoa Beach. Correct. Yeah. And the other thing I'll say is in Wicked City, we do, we are in the 1920s, of course. We're in the 1920s in a certain age, Wicked City, and in this book. However, what we did get in in Wicked City was a completely different time period. So if readers were like a little 1920'd out, they do get a much more contemporary time right. period of the 90s right. um, to sort of offset that. So I think that there was, I in my mind at least, for Beatrice, she had this all thought out and planned out because she's brilliant. Um, but I do think that there was intention to spacing this book out from a certain age, not just carrying it through, doing some stage setting in the last book to tie it all together. Also, don't you think that if we had found out, for example, about Agent Marshall sooner than we did, it would have kind of messed things up? Because when we met him in Wicked City, you know, when Ginger first met him, 
We didn't know he had already been to Florida breaking up a bootlegging ring with Simon. You know, we didn't know that. We didn't know that he had been an agent, like what he had been doing, because that happens kind of in, in between. What we have to remember that is that in this book, when we get to the epilogue, it's not 1922 anymore. Right. Some in between, Wicked City has happened. Right. You know, and then we get back to the, so it's so cool. Like, oh, I just, to not like that, to me, it's like, um, I'm amazed by it. And if we had met him in this book before Wicked City, we would already know who he was. Right. And we couldn't be in the dark like Ginger was. Right. right. By right. keeping us in the dark like Ginger was, we didn't know that Billy Marshall was Oliver's brother. Right. Yeah, we didn't know he was Agent Marshall. We thought he was Agent Anson, you know. Exactly. I did have a question that was brought up during my reading, and I, this might just be because I don't remember it from a certain age, but um, Virginia mentions at one point that her, when her mom was murdered, that she was pregnant when she was murdered and that it ended, it would have ended up being a baby boy. So she would have had a baby brother. And I don't remember that. So do you girls know any, was that mentioned to us in a certain age? I think so. I think I remember hearing about it during the trial. Yeah, uh, it some came out. Information we got from Sophie, like learning that, oh, I would have had this younger sibling. Cause I think that would be especially uh, sad for the younger, you know, like, oh, I'm not the youngest or I wouldn't have been the youngest, you know, but also we learn in this one that that was a sad thing from Vir Virginia, almost like just as sad as the fact that she lost her mother. Right. Um, I also did go back and look and we do hear about it as well. When Octavian is telling Sophie the story of the family that lived in the house that he takes her to, right. not, she's yeah. not even knowing like that's her family. He says that the mother was seven months gone with another baby and it would have been a baby boy, which is something he had heard from the neighbor boy. So mm, okay. maybe, like inadvertently learn about it that way. And then right. once it all the pieces right. come together, we right. realize it was her mom. So that might be it. It might not have been during the trial. Well, what you're it, saying. It might've been there too. Yeah. I didn't. Okay. That part, but. Gotcha. You heard it somewhere, right? Yep. Yep. Yes. So the one thing that I want to bring up, and I think it's basically like the driving force behind the central female characters in this book, um, was a quote that Samuel had said to Mr. Burnside towards the beginning of the book. And actually mom had brought this up about how Mr. Burnside thought that Virginia couldn't possibly run the business because she was a woman. So in response, Samuel had said to him, Mr. Burnside, I'm surprised a man your age doesn't know better by now than to put those words together. Just a woman. Women rule the earth, don't you know? A man doesn't do a single thing that isn't somehow inspired by a woman's will. Sometimes all it takes is her mere existence. And I thought, how appropriate for him to say this when we have our two characters, Virginia and then Lydia Clara, whose men want to do anything in their power to make those two women happy. I just thought it was a, a perfect quote, and I kind of feel like in real life, it's actually a little bit true. It should be true if it's not always. <laughs> well, it's certainly Samuel, because I remember when I first read that, I remember thinking, does Samuel really think that or is he just trying to look good in front of her? You know, and then as we go on, we find out that, my gosh, I mean, he's like being led around by Lydia by the nose. Right. I mean, he's totally trying to do what she wants, you know. But at the same time, I think he started to see what a diabolical creature she, he was she was and i think he started to pull away from her power and that's what actually ended up saving virginia and and uh his brother simon yeah and i almost i almost added that in the character descriptions that you know when he showed up he caused problems and that is true but at the end when he could have done things very differently when he right. really could have blown simon's brains out he shot him in the shoulder when he could have lit the match and walked away and let Virginia burn to death. He tossed her the pocket knife. I mean, obviously, you know, he was raised right too, you know, and he did have that moral conscience, just conscious despite her, you know. And I think he also had to, have to start to realize that if she would do this for all these other, to all these other people, what would stop her from doing the same thing to him? 
to get rid of him once she had what she wanted, which was just the money anyway. Mm. She wouldn't need him anymore. Yeah. That's a good point. Yep. Yeah, she was crazy, uh, mm. like through and through. I will say on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have Virginia who has so many different sides to her. And Pammy, kind of what you were saying in the um, your favorite element, like I love that we see so many different sides of Virginia, that she's defiant, that she's questioning. Sometimes she's way too trusting and like she'll believe Samuel when she has no real reason to trust him. Um, and then other times she's like just incredibly naive about, you know, the whole Clara thing, like, oh, you're my sister-in-law? Come on in, move in with me, no problem. Um, and it just was really cool to see that, you know, she could go through all these different sides of her, but at her core, I think she was a really strong person. She just got lost a little bit sometimes. And I feel like she was very human, like very, I could relate to her. Because um, while I've never obviously been through like all that she went through with crazy amount of stuff in a five year period, like just being at the war is one, you know, in the war involved is one thing, but um, but just that like you 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 do that, you know, you are you can be a really strong person and still screw up and trust somebody you shouldn't or uh, let yourself be drugged for a while and start to realize that's what's happening and still have trouble pulling yourself out of that. I mean, like, that's very human. That's very like, okay, she's not a superhero. You know, she's, she's a real person. You know, and the problem is that once she started to realize that she was so addicted to right. it, right. you know, it was, it right. she was too far gone to do it herself. Really? Yeah. But so one of the things that I thought was shocking was when Lydia talked about marriage. And she said this, she said, marriage is a form of prostitution. I believe she was talking to Virginia. It's all just trade, his money and you, whatever it is you're inclined to give him. And I think, was that a result of watching her father and her parents' marriage and thinking that that's what marriage was like? It was a form of prostitution that her, her mother kept her silence about her dad being, her husband being a philanderer because she got the status or the social whatever. I mean, that was just, and it, if you think about Lydia's character, if that's what she really believed, you understand why she had, she was such a bad person. <laughs> you know, if she had that such a cynical view of marriage. She's like well, the fudgy burn of this book. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. But way worse. And this kind of makes me go back way to worse. what, like when I was thinking that Simon was a sociopath in the beginning mm -hmm. and then by the end, I, I feel like she actually has those kinds of tendencies. Mm -hmm. I, and I don't know why that is. And maybe they did stem from her feelings about her parents' marriage, but she just, she really just didn't care about anyone but herself at yeah, all. She didn't, I don't think she had any redeeming character. Uh, character traits. Whereas I thought yeah. Budgie, I could feel for Budgie because of what her dad did to her. Right. You know, but I like, I remember thinking at one point, well, at least um, Lydia is being good to Evelyn. Yeah. And then we learn in the epilogue that when Simon and Clara came upon her, she was slapping Evelyn right. for crying mama while her mama's in the fire. Mm -hmm. Right. Gone. Any thought of her having any redeeming quality, gone. He was just yeah. doing that to get her to, to trust her. To go to sleep so easily. I, she had made that comment a little bit ago, like, oh, she's so good. She just goes right to sleep easily. Well, is it because you're knocking her out? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, the whole Clara-Lydia situation, just bananas for so many reasons. But the fact that, like, Virginia had met Clara and yet Lydia could still show up and say she's Clara. And this for me, like was reminiscent of the secret life of Violet Grant where, you know, Lionel slips into becomes Henry Mortimer and just like changes his identity. And it's like all good. And it, I mean, it kind of feels like this is the case here too. Luckily there was no one in America who really knew her outside of Samuel. And of course he was in on the game. Um, but just that she could come over and be like, I'm Clara. I'm his sister. And it's just so strange. But if you think about it, when she went to meet the family, the parents were sick. She was there for what, an hour maybe? And then Simon put her in that cottage and then she had no more contact. So she had such a brief amount of contact with Clara anyway in the first place 
that it would be so easy for Lydia to have taken her persona. And they were half-sisters after all. So they did share probably some character traits. Uh, not, I mean, physical traits. Not Certainly not personality. Yeah, no. Yeah, very true. Also, and this is uh, very connected to what we've been living through, she was wearing a mask. Yeah. Or at least had a mask dangling. I'm not sure if it was fully on her face at the moment, but because it was the influenza pandemic that, you know, during that time period and she believed her parents, and then we know that she got sick after that. Um, so it was definitely the flu, but there was a mask. I can't remember if it was on her face or dead, but whatever, it might've been kind of obscuring her a little mm-hmm, bit, a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Well then, um, one of the things that I really paused over And I wondered if this is a common reaction to all wars or to all really catastrophic events that happen in our world, is when uh, Lydia, who at the time we thought was Clara, said to Virginia, why did we go through all the trouble of surviving that awful war if we don't mean to live? She was wanting to go out and have fun and party and Virginia was trying to kind of, you know, be the good mom and stay at home with Evelyn and, and do the right thing. And I think, I was trying to remember, is that, was that kind of the knee-jerk response after Vietnam War, for example? We lost so many boys in the Vietnam War. Did people say, let's just go and have fun and just, you know, do whatever? Was that the knee-jerk reaction after World War II? Certainly, she's talking about it from World War, the World War I perspective. You know, I would just wonder, when a, cat, a catastrophe happens or when there is something that's a prolonged very hard period of history. Do people feel the need to just kind of go crazy, let loose? Because that's what they say the whole uh, flapper generation was all about, Mm -hmm. was just that trying to live because you didn't know if you were going to die tomorrow. So is that what we should expect to see, even though Corona's only been like four months? People just go out and go crazy? Well, I think we saw that last week or so. Yeah. Some people will do that. That's true. Indeed. Um, well, one of the things that was mentioned in the war period of this book that I thought was interesting was Chateau de Creuville. Creuville, yeah. Sure. Oh, French. I took Spanish. Uh, <laughs> I was impressed with the inter- Interessante. That was like... Thank you. <laughs> It makes me think of like Corella Duville. I don't know. I just need to say that because it was in my head. <laughs> um, yeah. Dalmatians, call out. Right. But anyway, that's where the hospital is set up that Virginia's working in in France. And so here's what I was trying to figure out: Is that the place where Annabelle is? Because, but here I see you nodding, Mom. I see your head going. However. <laughs> that where she where Annabelle was with her father where she met Stefan and she first met Johan that was on the coast and I don't remember them when they were talking about the chateau being by water in this book Mm, yeah they didn't mention that maybe it was but but that was my thing and so I was like did they actually have a different house because then they had their Paris house so I don't know I was just a little yeah it's definitely a connection whether it's the exact location or something else Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And because Annabelle's Annabelle, we could look into that. Well, and her her family, her story took place right around this. Time. No, it was World War II, I guess. So it had been later. So maybe there was an earlier chateau, and then that was gone because it was used for this, and so that's why they had to like rent a place by the sea. Maybe. So you're thinking that would have been in Along the Infinite Sea? Yeah. All right. So I just did a quick search in my Kindle app. And when I put in that name, it's no results found. What? And so what I'm, well, what I'm thinking is, what I'm thinking is this existed. This is in the 19, whatever, 1917. Mm. They commandeered it. Her story mm-hmm. is like 1940s. Correct. Could be different. Or 1930s. Name. Yeah. 1930s. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, her mom's last name definitely was Creville. Yeah, right? it was. Good point. Yeah. So or I, is that? Do we think that's the name or part of a place? You have something to do with a place, maybe. 
I don't know. Just a thought. That'd be, yeah, be, no that'd be fun research. You think it's a location in France? Yeah, or something. I don't know. That'd be some fun research to look into. It definitely made me think of it, though. When I read that book, oh, for like, sure. oh, my gosh, this is like the castle in the other book we read. Yeah. That was a connection. Yeah. Um, one of the things I want to make sure and bring up is we often talk about the, you know, character development, and we talk about the characters, a lot of the female characters, our protagonists often, you know. But a couple of things that I noticed, um, first of all, the letters from Simon that we find out were not actually ever mailed to Virginia along the way, you know, so cool, first of all, that he like knew that, that, that he shouldn't send them. But I loved reading them because it really developed Simon's character. Right. You know, we really got to know him through those letters, and I thought it was a very cool way to do that. Um, and just to, to see him built. And then the other thing I, I was just thinking about as we were talking, we mentioned Agent Marshall earlier, there was something that had struck me. So, you know, when you meet a character in a different book and you kind of see, you know, how Ginger perceived him and how he was described in um, Wicked City. And then there was this part in this book where when Virginia was talking to him, just this conversation that it was like, yes, it's so, it's so Agent Marshall. And I don't know why I'm surprised because, of course, Beatrice would maintain that characterization throughout and make him the same way. But I just love that she's so good about it, that she doesn't slip up. So there's this part where Agent Marshall's um, questioning Virginia about something, oh, about whether or not Simon really burned in the fire. And, he's, and, and she says, Virginia's talking to us. If I'm expecting some sort of reaction, shock or dismay or anything at all, I suppose you could say I'm disappointed. That damn dark eye doesn't even blink. I think the crease around the corner of his mouth tightens a bit, like somebody would the string or wound the string another notch, but that's all. Well, that's strange, he says. What makes you think that? Because the man I married wouldn't have burned to death in his own house. That's why you hesitated. What's that? Before you spoke, you hesitated. And that just reminded me so much of him because he's just that very straight face, you know, keeps his agent character, you know, doesn't react facially to Ginger in the other book. But it's cool to see a different woman perceive him mm -hmm. and to see that character through Virginia's eyes. So I just wanted to note that characterization with both Simon and Marshall and just how, uh, just again, what a great writer Beatrice is in the way she does things. Mm -hmm. Really is. Um, I'm going to just totally switch topics for a second. I have zero segue for this point I'd like to make. How interesting was it about the law in England that you couldn't marry your brother's ex-wife? I mean, like, that's probably good. Yeah. That's sort of strange. You know, ex-wife, I could understand, but widowed wife seems a little bit strict. You know, yeah, like, that was something more understandable that you would marry your, your brother's widowed wife. Then, you know, you decide you don't like, he doesn't, she doesn't like your brother, but she wants you, mm -hmm. or her husband, she wants her, his brother. Do we have that in our family? Am I thinking, am I making things up? Did somebody marry a, a widow? No. Or an ex? Is that not that I know of. Mm-mm. I don't know. Do you have anybody who like got divorced and got remarried to the same person? Not that I've I known know. people that have done that. Yeah, but not that I know of either. Oh, I feel like I remember some old movie I saw or something. I, I this is terrible. I don't remember when it took place or where it took place, but I feel like it was almost like the duty of a brother that if his brother died at war and left a widow that it was his duty to marry her and kind of carry on the family. So I was also surprised by that. I was like, what? And again, I could kind of see it more with the divorce thing, but widowed would seem like fair game, I guess I could say. So speaking of Simon and Samuel, just another question that I had that I don't feel like was ever really answered in the book. Um, when Virginia was attacked on the beach, she assumed or she thought it was Simon. And at the time I thought it was Simon too. But then later on when I discovered Simon wasn't a bad guy, then I thought, was it maybe Samuel because he and Samuel look alike? So was that ever actually answered? Or if not, what is your speculation? 
I do not believe it was ever actually answered. Correct. So who do you think it was? Well, so I could be persuaded either way, right? She mentions how Simon and Samuel have the same eyes, I think. Mm -hmm. yes. Even though they look different otherwise, they have the same eyes. However, right. if you read the author's note, Beatrice talks about how what her author calls, calls goody and baddie. She was like, I don't know. She said at the be you know, from starting the book, she didn't know if Simon was going to be a goody or a baddie. And so I wonder if perhaps as she was writing, she wrote that scene not knowing if Simon was going to end up redeeming himself. And so it actually was Simon or if it truly was Samuel because they were trying to like get her out of the way kind of thing, but, but they needed her. So, but then she gets, you know, prescribed opium, which we definitely have to talk about. And so maybe that was like a way to get her to get drugs that she thought she needed, but then actually it was opium. So I, I could really go either way. Hey, can we go back to the, you can't marry your brother's what, what widow? I just looked it up and in England, the Deceased Brothers Widows Marriage Act of 1921 was passed that allowed, it wasn't until 1921 that men were allowed to marry their, their brother's widow. Hmm. So think about when this was. This was 1917 to right. 1919 in right. France or in, in, in England. And so, yeah, that was, it really was a law. I actually do feel like I remember them mentioning that in the book. <laughs> Now that you're yeah. saying that, mm -hmm. yeah, like that there was going to be something passed. Yeah, there was a law that there was in the yeah. war. Yep. And that makes sense with the war. Passed. Yeah, it makes now, sense with the war because. Interestingly, a woman could, let's see, a deceased wife's sister could, like if a guy was married and his wife died, he could marry her sister. That was allowed in 1907. But a man could not marry his brother's widow until 1921. That's so weird. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I just looked it up, so I had to throw that in. <clears throat> if it here's my thought going back to Simon or Samuel on the beach. I'm still not sure either, but I almost just feel like she was kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's what I think too. And think got kind of in the middle of something that she wasn't supposed to get in the middle of. And and so I'm not sure that either one of them was like trying to killer obviously because simon wouldn't want to kill her and like you said natalie samuel needs her mm -hmm. um you know it's hard though i i don't want to believe it's simon put it that way i prefer to think it's samuel agreed me too i don't think it was either one of them i think it was the rum runners she was in she just way. assumed it was simon because she thought simon was a bad guy maybe I suppose it's possible that it was the rum runners and Simon was with them and she saw him. Cause that's, that's the problem. She saw somebody, True. you know? So I don't know. Good point. We'll have to ask Beatrice next time we see her. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> hey, remember on Cocoa Beach, who strikes Virginia? <laughs> um, but as a result of that uh, beating, she <laughs> gets prescribed opium, thinking it's aspirin, and that's crazy um, for lots of reasons that a doctor would prescribe her opium, number one. But just during the opium portions of the book, and like the, um, well, and the fire scene too, but I just want to focus on the opium actually. It makes me think of The Yellow Wallpaper, one of my all-time favorite short stories, and it's just so cool how like Virginia her voice changes to to demonstrate the effect that opium is having on her. I just want to tell you that I wrote the exact notation or annotation in my notes as I was reading this book. When I got to that part where I discovered that's what was happening and she was writing like that, I was like, oh my gosh, this is the yellow wallpaper, which also is one of my favorite all-time short stories. But it also made me think, because I remember when we were re rereading the wicked city and we were reading about the mom i was like wait is this the book where the woman is getting drugged and she doesn't realize and so i'm wondering do you think maybe that's why i know this is not the same book but maybe that's why she was always so weak is that he was slipping or something to keep her kind of on the down and the dated yeah no, i think she had tuberculosis okay gingers you're talking about ginger's mom correct yes 
Ginger's mom had tuberculosis. Okay. That's what she died from, consumption, right? That's, Isn't that what she died from? I don't know if you forgot, but mom's a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, did you forget? That is true. A doctor, who can, a doctor who cannot look at anyone's boobies. Can we just say right. Or scars, <laughs> even scars. Right. Right. <laughs> Listen, Jess, I looked at her medical records. Okay, and you know it's you read her she had, Yeah, she had, I'm pretty, I was pretty sure she had consumption, which is tuberculosis. Okay, well, I don't have quite the degree that mom has in medicine, <laughs> but I still think it's quite possible she was being drugged but on top not- of the tuberculosis. I mean, I think I, she actually loved her. Mm, well, I don't think maybe he thought he was making her comfortable. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Like, I just feel like she was physically weak, but there, I mean, for all those years, some, I don't know. And this is a theme we see in a lot of her books where the man is taking advantage medically of the woman, whether it's right. putting her in that's true. an insane asylum or, you know, whatever right. else. Right. But they do. Yeah. It's awful. Yeah, you just made me think of Tiny. Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I was thinking about with Virginia as she was going through and she kept talking about her father and the way she felt about him and the fact that he had murdered her mother. And then at the very end, she finds out from Lydia and Samuel that her dad hadn't actually done it. And just another speculation, I was wondering if you thought that if maybe she knew about that earlier, she wouldn't have been so skeptical of Simon and maybe would have kind of understood his viewpoint better or something like that. Do you think it would have gone the same way? Oh, I I totally think that her entire perception of the world in general was definitely colored by her thought that her father had murdered her mother. I think that everything in her life what came back to that any reaction she had to things any decisions that she made everything she did was that was at the center absolutely that was a life-changing moment for her and how awful that she didn't find out any earlier than that moment and that those two people had to be the one to tell her about it and that when she did find out her dad she had to also find out that her dad was dead mm-hmm. right so here finally she can no longer feel that fear of him that he was the one who killed her mom and yet she can't there's no reconciliation there's no going back to him there's no nothing because he's already gone horrible Horrible. and before anybody gets skeptical and i know not you guys but before anybody gets skeptical and tries to say like oh really she didn't know like how could she have not known i just want to point out that she had traveled to florida that she was not looking at any newspapers or anything And that we find out at one point that she did not even give Sophie an address to reach her. So there would have been no way for anyone to get word to her uh, about that. So well, it's, it's not like she had social media. So right. Yeah. So it's totally believable. Even at the end of a certain age, we know that Sophie's writing letters to her, but she has nowhere to send them. She's just like keeping a journal for her. Right. Um, I also think that the way her dad made them behave so secretly and like that whole thing and not how she felt like she couldn't ask questions or couldn't, you know, speak out or whatever made her just not ever go to Simon and be like, this is what Samuel's telling me. Is this true? Like, you know, she never confronted him. She just trusted Samuel's word and left. And I don't know, maybe that's just like a thing at a time. Cause we read a lot of books where like, if they had just talked, you know, like none of this would have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, in you know uh along the infinite sea if annabelle had just talked to stefan anyway um i do think that perhaps her relationship with her father her upbringing caused her to just run mm-hmm. that's a good point well i'm going to talk about the end does anybody have anything else you want to say about the beginning or the middle because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one of my noteworthy elements is just that i love the end for a couple different reasons. I love that the last chapter is just like this crazy scene. And then it's like, what? And then we get an epilogue. Thankfully, we get an epilogue, first of all. And I love the way um, we kind of find out, you know, Simon wakes up in the morning. 
he goes through, you know, checking on Virginia. Like, it's so cool rather than just telling us, and by the way, what had happened was, da, 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 you know, it's just cool how he goes through this little routine because he's heard a noise. So he checks on Virginia and the baby in her womb. And it's like, yes, you know. And then we find out, like, that there's been time that's passed, a couple years, and he checks on Evelyn. And we get a little story of things about her. And he checks on Sam, the little Sam, you know. And then he goes down and someone's trying to come, you know, get in the house and someone's saying his name. And we find out there's um, Agent Marshall with Ginger and Patsy. And so it's just like, click, click, click. You know, we have Wicked City and this book meet. And then, of course, it makes us go, now what? What's going to happen now? You know, why did he bring her there? I mean, we know why he brought her there, but what's going to happen? What are they going to do there? And I just think it's so cool that she that Beatrice could just like bring these that just shows the planning in her writing to bring it together like that and it's just a fun way to end the book and I think in a lot of ways these people are real to Beatrice because they're certainly real to me Mm -hmm. me too I mean I've had dreams about these people Mm -hmm. sometimes when I'm not reading I find myself I think we've mentioned this before I'll think I wonder what Virginia's doing right now (laughs) (laughs) and it's like She's not doing, well, she is, whatever she's doing in the book, but she's not real. Right. She's not real. It was like 80 years ago. Right. So there's that. Great. But I'll just be thinking about them, like, what is happening right now? And it's like, nothing's happening. But novels always, when you talk about novels, you have to always talk about them in the present tense. Right. Talk about the characters, it's always in the present tense. Yeah, that's what I teach my students. You're even allowed to write about them in the present tense. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, so that was my last noteworthy point because I just love the end. Mm-hmm. So good. I guess that means it's time for criticisms. And actually, this is a good segue because that was kind of a criticism. So um, on Goodreads, this book was given a 3.47 out of 5. And when I was going through reading the different criticisms, a lot of what they were talking about was that the story brought up too many questions that were unanswered. But I was discovering that these questions that these people had were a result of the readers not reading her previous books. For example, people were talking about, we feel like we needed more backstory of Virginia's father's murder trial, or who is this random person who ended up at the end of the story, and this is supposed to be a standalone book, so why would she be here if it's not supposed to be part of a series. So my question is, do you guys think that is a negative or a positive or how do you feel about that? Well, I think think that people are, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I think it's a shame that they haven't read all of Beatrice's book. Shame on them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I was going to say they're dumb. So (laughs) the same thing. I'll be a little bit nicer. I will just say that I'm thankful that we did know to read them in order, that somehow we happened upon them early enough that we did read them in order. Whereas I could see if someone was just starting, oh, I need a good beach read. Oh, Cocoa Beach, that sounds cool. I could see how that could happen. So I'll just throw that out there. I I mean, I will say, I I think it can be a standalone book, right? Like within the confines of this book, you know everything you need to know to understand what happens in the book and for it still to be an enjoyable book. Like you don't need to know that Virginia came back from war and like Simon was missing from a certain age. You don't really need to even know anything about her father's murder trial other than what you find out in this book. And then the end wraps up. And yes, those are the other two characters that you could be like, well, what's next? But that doesn't change the story that's just happened. And I do think that maybe that's one of the reasons why people who have only read this book were maybe rating it slightly lower, but people like us who have read all of them in order, it makes these books even more spectacular because she is interweaving each of them so seamlessly and you, you don't have to read them all in order, but if you do, you get the better story. It makes it so delicious, you know, it's it's richer. It's, it's, it's like they're real people, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Right. Because real people's lives do intersect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, go ahead. Go ahead, Natalie, because I'm going to kind of change gears. I was going to say, I mean, even if you just look at like the character tree, it just gets out of control because and like, I was thinking about like, do I cut some sections out? But like, there are people who, you know, could pop back up later. So I don't want to lose them. And, you know, just even building from certain age to this book, the tree just 
cool to see where the different people come into play. That is exactly what I want to point out. We do not have a Julie Schuyler in this book. <gasps> I think it's the first one, right? Wow. You're right. And, and it just dawned on me when we were just talking. I thought, wait a second, because what I thought to myself was, I, I am very thankful we read them in order because I agree. Um, I think all of them are, could be standalone books. Even the three Skylar sister books. I don't think you have to have read. Yes, it makes it richer and deeper, and you, but, but you do have what you need because Beatrice is always good about giving that backstory to kind of remind you. Because remember, when we read these through the first time, we did not read them close together. That's right. We did. We not. read them as they came out. Right. It could be six months to a year before we read the next one, and we were okay because she gave us that backstory. Now we're reading them close together, and it, and it's richer and deeper, and we're enjoying it so much. And part of it is because we go, "Oh, I know that person. Oh, I remember this, or I know what's happening. You know, happened five years ago, or whatever the case may be." And that makes it so cool. But when I was just thinking about that, I thought. There's no Julie. That's always one that I go, there's Julie. Yeah, and of course there's no Julie because Julie's connection was with Sophie. Right. And Sophie is not in this book at all, other right. than just being mentioned. Yeah. Well, is, are there any Skylers? Mm-mm. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. Nope. Yeah. No. Which again is cool. I mean, it's, while that feels like, wait, what? You know, because we've been so used to it. It shows that. Beatrice can take that turn in a different direction with these different characters. I also love that we go a different place, yes. yeah. you know, that we go to Florida. Yeah, we're not in New York. I right. think Beatrice, when she wrote A Certain Age, um, thought, you know what? I'd like to learn more about Virginia. She's, mm -hmm. you know, she's a minor character. She's Sophie's sister, so she's important, but she doesn't really do a whole lot. And mm -hmm. she kind of disappears. We need to explore what happened to her and what's right. going on with this mysterious husband, not husband. Who is this guy? Because mm -hmm. throughout that book, I thought, where is that lame husband of hers? Right. What's he doing? So I kept, it's easy to I, think of him as being a bad guy because we felt like she had been, you know, uh, abandoned by him right. in that book. Do we think there's any connection between their house in Coco and Annabelle's house in Coco? Mm, good Annabelle, question. she bought her house in like... It was after the war. Would you was, say? Was it after the war was done or was it like 42, 43? I felt like it was after, but maybe it was 42 or 43. <laughs> yeah, I'm not yeah. sure. But regardless, so it would have been some, you know, 20 odd years later from when mm -hmm. she and Simon are living there with their children. Right. And I, I remember her saying they bought it really cheap, but I don't remember why. And maybe it's not. Maybe I'm just like trying to make more connections where there are none. Mm -hmm. That just occurred to me. But wouldn't that be cool if it was? Super cool. Cool connection, though. Again, in the um, author's note at the end, we find out from Beatrice that while she was writing, she learned that the Maitland Plantation actually was a real place. Yes, it was. And she found out because of a postcard from, I can't remember if it was Carol or somebody, Domerich. Yeah. And then she puts in parentheses, you know, those of you who have read my other books, recognize the last name. So I thought that was kind of neat that even if there is no intersection, she did use that Domerich name in a character in Florida. Mm -hmm. You know, so that was neat. And didn't she mention that that last name was her, somebody related to her husband? I think it was her, they're going through her mother-in-law's stuff, I thought. That's yes. what I thought. Was. I think it's a friend or something. Oh, okay. Family. I thought it was related to her. It could be, but it could be a family member. All right. So I, other than that, I only had two criticisms that really kept coming across, but I feel like we've already addressed the first one. Um, people were saying that they didn't warm to the characters and they didn't really like Virginia because they felt like she became weak around Simon and those types of things. But I kind of feel like we've already talked about Virginia and why she was the way she was. Is there anything else you want to add to that or we all okay? I will say that she is not like, I mean, 
Ginger is probably one of my favorite characters of all time. She, she could not, she would never measure up to how I feel about Ginger. I don't, I don't know that I didn't like her or that I really loved her. I just, I mean, she was in a bad position mm-hmm. and I felt for her, but, um, so I, I guess I would agree it. She wasn't my favorite character, but so what? But like literally everyone in her life was lying to her. I know. And so that's no. what I'm saying. I felt for her because I knew, and then she was drugged half the time. Right. So. Also, even if she hadn't been lied to, the idea about, you said something about her being weak with Simon. Yeah. They didn't like how she all of a sudden fell in love so quickly. And that no, happened. why do they say so quickly? It didn't happen so quickly. <laughs> I, like, I just feel like people are rushing what's happening in the story. But what I was going to say about that is anybody who's ever been in love before or even thought you were in love with someone and find out that it was, and or even just if they, you know, were, I don't know, looking for, for fun, looking for a relationship, whatever, particularly in an emotional time like the war, I think it would be easy to, um, to be kind of weak with that per, you know, to kind of let that person persuade you, let that person you know, and I really do feel like she did fall in love with him. I think that's why even when she left him and, and didn't like him so much later, she still kept going back to, but he's my husband and he's the father of my child. And, you know, but I just, I don't see, I don't I just don't see like the weakness part because I feel like we all maybe get a little bit, um, caught up. Yeah. Caught up. And like, we, we say things and do things sometimes in that love kind of atmosphere and, and, and especially so because of, again, her upbringing, she's there during the war. She is innocent. This older man is paying a lot of attention to her, making her feel alive. I just, all of those things to me play into that. I would also like to know how long it takes those readers who made that criticism, how long did it take them to fall in love with someone? Did it take them years? Did it take yeah. them months? I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Good point. Plus she was young. She was, yeah, like she was young. Right. And right. had never had experience with right. men before because her dad kept her basically under lock and key. Right. And, she, right. and her dad was not a very good role model of a guy to be around anyway. Right. So it'd be, it would be hard. Okay. So they're wrong. <laughs> yeah. Right. Bottom line, they're wrong. Yeah. Move on. All right. So she's not weak. Also, just want to say that one more time. (laughs) All right. So our final criticism, and now this comes from some people who have read other Beatrice books and are okay with the jumping back and forth between time periods. They said that they felt like a lot of this backstory was told in flashback with the years being pretty close to each other. And they felt like that lent to some confusion on their part because it, it wasn't two totally separate time periods. It was the same person close together. Two different locations. War, not war. <laughs> I don't know. That seems pretty straightforward. Right. Also, I will tell you that there was one part of the book when I started reading it, I thought, what? And then I went, oh, wait, we just jumped back to a different time period. But that happened one time to me during the entire book. It did not happen constantly. It just happened one time. I was just going to say also there are like dates of the beginning of the chapters and on the letters and whatnot. But what you just said, mom, haven't you guys done that before in other books? Absolutely. You know, you're like going, you're caught up and you're like, wait, he said that now. Oh no, we're finding out what happened before. Right. And even in a book that is all in one time period and might have some flashbacks mm-hmm. that can happen, let alone right. this complex plot that is cooler than most plots you read. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think it also lends itself to the idea that you don't really know until the very end who ends up being the good guy and the bad guy. And so when you're kind of getting the story from all different angles and different time periods, it, it gives you that sense of not really knowing and having to be a detective yourself right? Mm-hmm. and try to figure it out, which is what's so cool about it. Mm-hmm. Agreed. You're, you're an active participant. You're not just passively reading this book. You're trying to figure out who is the bad guy? Who is the bad guy? Who's lying? Who's telling the truth? What's going on? Mm-hmm. 
So ironically, not something that someone refers to as a beach read, despite being right. called Coco Beach. Right. right. Yeah. Well, uh, so here's what else. Yes, because for me, yes, this is a beach read. Uh, you know, but I guess yeah, maybe some people want fluff. Yeah. Right. You know, I love that this is a substantial plot with excellent characterization, a love story, a mystery, a historical fiction. Like I learn things while I'm reading it. This to me is a, a great beach read, but it's certainly not fluff. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I just have to tell you guys, um, one of our listeners has let me know that anytime I describe Beatrice Williams as a historical fiction writer, she gets really upset because she says that sounds incredibly boring to her. So when you uh, said historical <laughs> fiction, it made me like, it is historical fiction. And I Absolutely. But she says, but there, no. it's nothing. It's, it's definitely not boring. Definitely no, not boring. About and, it. and her thing is for her, she doesn't even pay attention to that part. She cares about the characters yeah. and sure. that's what Beatrice is excellent at. Of course, right. the characters yes. story. But I will tell you, when she brings up, when she drops names like the Flamingo Hotel and Rosie the Elephant in this novel and all the other ones she's done in previous novels, I think to myself, are those real? And so I stop and I look them up because I want to see, are they real? And so I'm always so delighted when I find out, yes, this opened in this time period and it closed here. Rosie Ele the Elephant was an attraction at this, ho at this hotel. Absolutely, it happened this way. Carl Fisher that Lydia talks about at the beginning of the story was a real human being. Yep. And I just love that. And I don't know if this will help her or not, but I find uh, historical fiction super fascinating because for me, it brings to life like a real time period or something that really happened and kind of gives me that, what was it like for people mm -hmm. to live during the war? What was it like for a young woman to drive an ambulance out to a barn that's being used for surgery on these men being brought in from the front line. Like, cause I can't fathom that, right? I've never lived through it. So to read it and to get to be there. And then what mom just pointed out that research, like that's why I think it's so good because it just shows that she, I don't know this stuff. Like mm -hmm. I couldn't sit down and try to write this on my own, you know? So I get it. Cause I, I guess, yeah, historical fiction could sound like boring, like kind of like nonfiction, but, um, but for <laughs> me, it's like a very, not all not, you know, I prefer, you know, but, <laughs> but for me, I just think it's so cool because we get that fun story that she created within with the context real of real backdrop. Yeah, yeah. Which I love. Me too. I agree. I enjoy it, but I don't know if Beatrice would call it that or not. Do we know? We'll have to ask her that too. Add it is to the coming? question. Is she coming this summer? Uh, we haven't heard anything. They're just doing remote ones right now. So okay. The COVID libraries aren't fully open yet. All right. We need to get on the podcast with us. Yes. yes. Invite her. <laughs> Well, I think that brings us to the end of our discussion. So it was lovely chatting Cocoa Beach with you ladies. Jess, where can they find us and what's up next? All right, listeners, you need to check us out on our website, which is novelexpressionsbookclub.com. And you can now also find us on Instagram at novelexpressionsbookclub. We'll be back in two weeks with The Summer Wives. Until we read again. Thank mm -hmm. you.